The second reading is from 1 Corinthians, and it's chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not love, do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, We shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Here ends the reading. Thanks, Pippa and Craig. Um, As... Peter said we are looking at love today. This is a short topical series that we've been doing the past three weeks, Faith, Hope and Love, and today we're finishing with love, the greatest of these, as it said just then. Um, As usual, we'll have an opportunity for questions later on, so if any questions come up on the way through, make a note of those and you can ask them later on. Just a reminder, the other reading that we had, we've been reading through the book of Acts Um, just because it's good to hear God's word read and to listen to it, to let it uh, soak into us, to hear God's spirit speak to us in that way, even when it's not being preached upon. Uh, So uh, I encourage you just to kind of follow along. We heard the first half of Stephen's speech today. We'll hear the second half next week. And later in the year, in fact, we're going to come back and actually preach through Acts as well. But today we're looking at love. Uh, We're going to come to the 1 Corinthians passage later on, but before that we're going to look at a few other places. But let's pray again. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we, we are conscious that love is so significant in both your dealings with us and the way you tell us to be relating to you and to each other. Uh, we see it as a, as a wonderful ideal, and yet, Father, we know that um, it's not necessarily something that we do as well as we would like. And so we pray that this morning you will convict us of that, uh, convict us of the goodness and the importance of love, and show us where we can be loving others in ways that we are currently not. 
In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. I think it probably almost goes without saying and uh, everyone agrees that love is a good thing, right? No, not many people are going to say, actually, no, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, and everyone claims to be on the side of love. Everyone wants to be able to claim that label. But, of course, when we use the word love, we often mean so many different things, don't we? I mean, just think about it. You know, I love hamburgers. I love surfing. I love my wife. I don't want to get confused as to which one I'm talking about when I use the word love in that way, do I? But, uh, of course, we mean love in different ways when we use it in different contexts, but even when it comes to people and with our different relationships, everyone wants to be able to say, yes, I'm on the side of love. And yet, is that really the way that our world operates and the way that we operate? Everyone wants to be able to say, yes, we are the love people. But what do we actually mean? Sometimes we might just mean that other person meets my desires. We use the word in that way but that's not really what love means. A lot of the time, I suspect, what we really mean when we say love or when we do love is I care about the people around me, me and, and my tribe, you could say. But for those who are kind of outside of that bubble of my space, well, I don't really have any obligation to you. Maybe you're irrelevant to my love. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing actually at the moment with the, the divisive and the highly combative social issues that are being argued out in the media and the social media where everyone claims to be arguing from the perspective of love, except for when it comes to arguing with their opponents. They're not the people that I need to love. They're irrelevant. They don't matter. I don't have to love them. Or perhaps a bit more personally, I'm sure we've all met that person who is lovely, absolutely lovely as long as you are one of the people that they like. But if you're not, well, it's a whole other story. And you find yourself thinking, are we talking about the same person here? I think they're lovely, but not when they speak to this other person. I mean, I've had neighbours who get on famously with one side of the, their house, but on the other side, not at all. I've had friends who are, who are like that, and sadly, I've been in churches where there is a massive difference to how people treat somebody else, depending on whether... That person is someone that they like. Is that what we're like? What will stop us from being like that? So that love means more than just, well, I care about the people that I like. Because as we're going to see, that's actually not love at all. Or at least it's not the kind of love that we're meant to have. As you could imagine today, in the kind of 20 minutes we're going to spend, we're really just going to be scratching the surface of this big topic that runs so deep and right throughout the Bible. It's right at the, mess, the heart of the Bible's message. You know, the most famous verse of the Bible that really summarises the Bible's message is about love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If we're going to get this right and actually be about love and not just say that we're about love, then we need to go to the source, to the God who is love. And I thought maybe a helpful way to start us thinking about this would come to Jesus' most famous command, love your neighbour, love your neighbour as yourself. I think most people ag agree that this is a good idea. And in fact, Jesus' words are so well known, so recognised and acknowledged 
that people even forget that they come from the lips of Jesus. I mean, isn't it just obvious that we should love our neighbour as ourselves? Isn't that just clearly what we should do? There's actually a historian named Tom Holland. Uh, when I mentioned Tom Holland to someone else, they said, you mean Spider-Man? No, not, not the guy who plays Spider-Man, another, another guy called Tom Holland who's a historian. And he spent over a decade researching the development of um, the mindset and the ethics of the West. And he came to a, a conclusion that surprised him because he's not a Christian, but he argues that most of what we assume to be common sense or self-evident or just obvious in the things that we value and hold dear in Western thinking has actually come to us through Christianity and particularly through the kind of love that Jesus has for us. And last year he tweeted a quote around this idea. He said, the doctrine of loving one's neighbour is a fantasy that we owe to Christianity and not to nature. We owe it to Christianity and not to nature. And as you'd expect with Twitter, there were all kinds of responses to that tweet. But the one that kind of, the one response that stood out to me as the most, I guess, representative was the guy who said, and I thought that was just obvious. I mean, isn't it just obvious, just common sense, that we should love the people around us? Be kind, don't be a jerk. Isn't love the most obvious commandment? regardless of whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. But I suspect that most of the time when we think about this most obvious commandment, we actually miss the shocking truth of what Jesus really meant when he said it. Perhaps you remember when Jesus said this this statement, to love your neighbour as yourself. Someone in the crowd said to him, what do you mean, Jesus? Who is my neighbour? And it was at that point that Jesus told one of his most famous parables to explain what he meant when he said, love your neighbour. It was the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the parable? That is not a story of a guy just loving his friends or the people around him, the people who are nice to him. It's a story about loving your enemy, even at great cost. And I was thinking about the, the Samaritan because we don't really have a a mindset of thinking about Samaritans. We just think, aren't Samaritans good people because the good Samaritan was a good person? But in Jesus' day, the Samaritans and the Jews were so antagonistic and against each other. I mean, the, the closest comparison I could think of was someone in a Black Lives Matter rally helping someone who was a white supremacist along the way. That's the kind of antagonism that we're talking about here, the kind of opposition. That's what Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbour. Your your neighbour is your enemy. In fact, he says exactly that. He says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That person who, well, either irritates or perhaps outright attacks you. The family member who just niggles and gets under your skin. Because Jesus says, anyone can love the person who loves them back. That's easy. Everybody does that. In fact, have you heard the expression thick as thieves? You've heard the expression thick as thieves? It's not talking about the intelligence of criminals. It's talking about their friendship. It's talking about their camaraderie, their loyalty to each other. They are tight with each other. Saying that even criminals have a a reputation, at least to some degree, of, of being nice to each other. 
looking after their own, caring for their mates. How is our love any different to that? Anyone can love the people I get along with who love me back. The, the radical, the most shocking and the most forgotten thing about Jesus' teaching is that he's actually commanding us to love our enemies. That's what Jesus means when he says, love your neighbour as yourself. And this is what will set us apart, set us apart from the rest of the world. When Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It will mean choosing to be kind to that person who just goes out of their way to make your life hard. Choosing to be kind to that person. Or choosing not to take revenge when you have the opportunity and you could get away with it. It would mean Jesus offering forgiveness to the people who were nailing, hammering nails through his hands and his feet and who were mocking and jeering and ridiculing him while he hung on the cross, which, of course, is exactly what he did. He gave us the perfect example of the kind of love he was telling us to do. Which brings us to the second shocking truth of what Jesus really meant when he said, love your neighbour. That is, loving your neighbour costs. It's self-sacrificial. It gives up what is good for me for the sake of what is good for you. For the good Samaritan, it meant giving up his money, his time, and probably his pride to help someone who was so against him. For Jesus, it cost him humiliation, ridicule, abandonment, and in the end, it cost his very life. And this is where we get to the very heart of what love looks like. If you were here last year, you might remember that we spent a couple of weeks in 1 John looking at what the Bible says about love there, and I'm not going to cover everything that we looked at then, but just want to hit on a couple of the key verses that we see in 1 John about love. Firstly, 1 John 3.16 says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? It shows both the character and the extent of God's love for us in Jesus. Jesus gave his very life. That's what it cost him. And 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see that? God didn't wait for us to love him back. While we were busy not loving God, busy loving everything else, loving ourselves, loving the good things that God gives us, while at the same time treating God as if he's not there or doesn't matter, taking God for granted. God loved us anyway. That is when Jesus laid down his life for us. Do you see how there is both these elements of the shocking truth of the kind of love that Jesus calls us to live? Love for enemies who don't love you back. Love that costs that's the example of the love that God has given us. And God does this, God loves like this, because God is love, which is what we also saw in 1 John. God is love. No, it's not, not just God does love, but God is love. Love is getting to the very nature of God himself. This is what God is like. This is who he is. 
And I think we're getting kind of into mind-bending territory here because we're starting to talk about the Trinity, that the one God is a perfect relationship of love between three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So you can't be love on your own, can you? But before any other being existed in the universe, God was love in that perfect relationship of love between Father, Son, and Spirit, which I think makes it all the more remarkable that God would love us. I mean, he wasn't looking for company. He wasn't lonely. That's not why he created us. And yet he chose to create us, not just create us, but to set his love upon us in a unique way. And even when we rejected that love, at ultimate cost to himself, he paid that price to bring us back into a relationship of love with him so that we can enjoy the perfect love of the God who is love. I mean, that kind of love is mind-blowing. And God says to us, since I have loved you like this, that is how you should love one another. The God who is love has given us the perfect, perfect example of love. And that's what he's asking of us when he says, love your neighbour, love even your enemies, Love even when it costs you. If we have this love in us, if we have received and benefited from this love, then it should drive us to have that same kind of love towards others. And it's at this point that I want to kind of bring us back to that passage that we read before from 1 Corinthians 13, which I think paints a beautiful portrait of love of what this kind of love can look like. Because it's easy to say, I think, of course, I love. Yes, that's what I do, that's what I'm about. But this passage describes the character of love so specifically that you just can't wiggle out of it. And I have to say, it's been a real personal challenge for me this week as I've thought about some of the difficult relationships in my life and my tendency to identify the problem in the other person. Am I the only person who does that? This love list kind of really turns it back on myself and it hits hard in, in a helpful way because it forces me to look at myself and go, well, am I loving like this? This is what love looks like. And I hope it does that for you too. We could do a lot worse than just to go home and reread this description of love and apply it to the relationships that we are in. Am I living with this kind of love? How might I be different if I was, how might my relationships benefit if I was? It's a massive challenge. But before we all go home and do that, I thought maybe it would be good to just have a look at a few of these things together, particularly in verses 4 to 7 of, of 1 Corinthians 13. Now, this love list is particularly talking about the context of church, which is, I guess, really relevant and helpful for us. We're used to hearing it at weddings. I'm sure most of us have heard this read at a wedding and it is helpful for marriage relationships and for all kinds of relationships. But its first context is for churches. And so we'll, we'll come back at another time and we'll, we'll look at 1 Corinthians more closely and see specifically what it, what it means for church relationships. But as I said, it's helpful for all of our relationships. So today I want to encourage each one of us to put this list through the filter of the different relationships that we are in, especially the difficult ones. <clears throat> so as I said, I'm going to pick out a few of these just to dwell on together 
and I encourage you to do it more fully when you go home. The first one in, in verse 4 is patience. Love is patient. And when I think about patience, I think I'm patient for a little while, which, of course, is the exact opposite of patience, isn't it? The whole idea of patience is about bearing with the shortcomings or the, the negative attributes of other people over time. So the, the, the bad habits, the irritating things, the weaknesses, the idiosyncrasies, and particularly those things that impact on me in a negative way. Not expecting people to change instantly, but bearing with those things patiently. Because it's easy to put up with difficulties for a little while. It's easy to be considerate of other people for a little while, to let myself be put out a couple of times. But when that goes on, that's when love needs to show itself in patience. Patience isn't seen in just the ones and the twos. It's seen in the consistent, the longer term, week in, week out, even year in, year out. And particularly, I think, it's seen in our kindness in those situations, which is the next characteristic after patience. Love is kind. Patience will mean reacting kindly to that person who is being difficult. It doesn't necessarily mean we won't challenge that, but we will respond kindly. I mean, think about what a difference that would make when we're confronted with something in somebody else that rubs us the wrong way. What difference would it make to our relationships if we just responded with patient kindness so that we care more about the other person than about the thing that they are doing that is causing a problem. And I think one of the keys to doing this well has got to be, further down in the list there, not easily angered. And I suspect this is one of those things that particularly will speak to some personalities more than others, but it's such an important aspect of what uh, loving relationships can look like. Because, you know, anger can be very effective in getting the things that we want. It's a forceful way of re relating. But what it can also do is permanently damage a relationship. Things said and done in anger are almost always the wrong things said or done. Let me just have a think about that. Things said or done in anger are almost always the wrong things said or done. And James tells us that one of the best strategies for dealing with anger is be quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to listen and slow to speak. I mean, that's a pretty helpful tip, isn't it? Think about how much better our relationships would be, how much less hurt there would be if we followed that simple advice. We can love others by learning to control our anger. And also by not keeping a record of wrongs. And I suspect that if there is a certain personality type that maybe is more inclined to be quick to anger, there's also another personality type that might be more inclined to keep a record of wrongs. See, it's no good holding our tongue in the moment, but then going away and keeping a mental catalogue of all the wrongs that someone has done against us and holding them, holding on to them and letting that poison the way that I relate to that person. Now, I've seen, I've seen that happen. I've seen great examples of people not doing this and I've seen terrible examples of people doing exactly this. I mean, as I think of a good example, um, 
one that I've been on the receiving end of, someone who has just chosen not to hold my angry words against me. So I, I had an altercation with someone and it had the potential to sour our relationship. But as I think now back over the years, I think how thankful I am that that person has chosen not to hold that against me. But I've also seen the exact opposite. And sadly, I'm sure we've all seen examples, heard stories, even in churches, of people who have held on to wrongs that have been done in the past. I mean, I heard a story about two men that sat on opposite sides of a church and did not speak to each other for 30 years because of some slight that happened decades ago. Although I suspect that these days it's much more common that people will just leave rather than do that. I've seen family relationships that have been broken because of people holding on to harsh words that cannot be unsaid. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. That's what will stop us from being like that. Further down, in verse, sorry, in verse 4, love does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud. Pride, envy and boasting. <clears throat> uh, kind of the opposite of humility, really. Pride and envy resents the success of others. Humility is happy to see others raised up, rejoices when things go well for others, and happy to be low in comparison. In many ways, pride is the opposite of love itself because pride puts me at the centre. My status, my significance, my being respected and valued by others, that's my primary concern. But love doesn't care about that. Love puts others at the centre and cares about lifting them up first. And the thing is, and this is the real trap, I think, for in churches, it is possible to do good things with a motivation of pride. <clears throat> it's possible to do good things with a mo motivation of pride or boasting. The ways I serve in church, the ways that I contribute in Bible study, it says in verse 3, even giving to the poor, but if we are doing that out of pride and not out of love, I mean, it's very clear there, isn't it? I am nothing. I gain nothing. For all my efforts and my good words, think about all the good words that you could say. It says, I'm just a noisy symbol and a clanging gong. I might as well be banging pots in the kitchen. That's how much good I'm doing. Now, I've just covered a few uh, selection of those descriptions of what love looks like. And as I said, I think the real value for us here will be to go away and think about our particular relationships and put that through the filter of this love description. Think about your significant relationships, your regular relationships, and especially your difficult relationships. As much as I said, it's easy to assume that the problem is in the other person, and it may be, it may actually be but we're called to love them anyway. Loving even those who aren't loving us. Love that is self-sacrificial because this is how God has loved us. This is what God has shown us love is really like. Because I know there are countless times when I have said or done something that offends not just the person that I've said or done it to, 
but God who made that person. I mean, have a think about it like that, that when we hurt other people, it grieves God who made them, and yet he has chosen to forgive us. But it cost him. It cost him dearly. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see how different this is to just loving the people that I care about, my little bubble of people, my family or my friends, the people that I agree with or get along with who think like me. Or even how different it is to just try to be nice rather than a jerk as long as it doesn't inconvenience you too much. Real love, God's love, loves even our enemies and even when it costs us. That's how God has loved us and that's how he has called us to love each other. Far from being the most obvious command, I think this is the most radical and the most world-changing command there is. Let's pray that we'll follow this. Heavenly Father, when we scratch the surface of Jesus' words to love, we realise what a big task it is. And yet we are conscious that he didn't just say it. He put his money where his mouth is. Father, thank you that in Jesus you have given us the ultimate example of love. And we ask that you will help us to recognise the magnitude of that, how wide and high and long and deep is the love that you have shown to us in Jesus, that we will swim in its depths, that we will recognise and revel in the goodness of that love that you have shown to us. And we ask that as we do that, you will enable that love to flow through us into how we treat others. And Father, may that transform our relationships and may it bring great honour and glory to you and to your son, Jesus. Amen.